Hello, I'm Martin Mentele. I'm from Germany. I'm working in Ulm, where there used to be the Ulm School of Design, and I'm working for the archive of this former Ulm School of Design, which is part of the Ulm Museum in Germany. Hello, Martin. I'm Evelyn Cetus from RMIT Gallery, and it's lovely to have you here. And um, why don't we start perhaps at the beginning with a foundation course? Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, thank you, Evelyn. The foundation course is one major part of the education at the Ulm School of Design, and it is in the beginning, in 53, directly related to the ideas coming from the Bauhaus, uh, which was founded in 1919 in Weimar and then operated in Dessau. And there were also former Bauhaus students and teachers um, in the staff in Ulm. And so uh, in the beginning we have uh, this foundation course trying to educate the beginning students in their visual abilities and the way they perceive three-dimensionality, color, and uh, all different sort of things related with the visual uh, aspects of design. Now, um, let's just step back just a little bit mm -hmm. in terms of the bar house. Yeah. And I was getting very excited and, and talking to someone uh, about this, and they said, I, I don't actually understand what the bow wow is. <laughs> and I said, no, no, this bar house is a very important German design school. So yeah. perhaps a, a little brief summary of, of why that was important and how I followed on from that. Okay, I'll try to be brief about the Bauhaus. Yeah, the Bauhaus is uh, before World War, uh, after World War One, uh, in the Weimar period, the most important German school for art and design. But it's not a traditional art academy where you would study uh, sculpture or uh, painting. Uh, they try to unify the arts, and they said the, there's a manifesto of the Bauhaus at the beginning in 1919, written by Walter Gropius, the founder, and they say the sort of the go the goal of of the arts is architecture. So every art has to join in order to to build architecture, to architecture to form architecture, and so they had different classes: uh, painting, uh, wall painting also glass windows and then metalwork. There was a very famous metal workshop at the Bauhaus, um, a weaving class and many more. And, and so they tried to have a more modern approach to, to the whole art education. But still it was in, seen from Ulm, seen from 20, 30 years later, very much too close to the art still. And so only in the late years of the Bauhaus they tried to approach industry and to, to have uh, products designed which could be made in an industrial way. So under Hannes Meyer, who was from Switzerland, they really started to develop lamps, for example, which was a quite successful product. But one of the most uh, pro um, successful products of the Bauhaus were the wallpapers, actually. <clears throat> and um, of course we have many famous artists working at the Bauhaus of the 20th century and the most known probably are Vasily Kandinsky and Paul Klee. They both were already quite known before World War I because they were uh, forming or they belonged to the group of the Blaue Reiter in Munich which is one of the most influential art groups in that period, and of course, Vasily Kandinsky is one of the pioneers of uh, abstract art. Hmm. And um, then, 
one of the things you were talking about is industry, and I guess that leads us into the age of <clears throat> post World War Two, and we're looking at uh, <clears throat> production, <laughs> yeah, and mass production, in fact. Exactly. And um, and so, how how did the Elm School um, of Design? try and prepare designers for this new world. Mm. Yeah, that's a very important aspect uh, because, it, as I told you in the beginning, the idea was in Ulm to sort of re, uh, re-enact the Bauhaus, to, to, to relive, uh, live in it again. But uh, then there was really a sort of gap and, and uh, also a quarrel because the founding director, Max Bill, was a former Bauhaus student and he, with all his contacts he brought... Uh, former Bauhaus teachers to Ulm but then the younger generation said well so many things have happened and the whole world has changed we really now have to approach uh, the the concept of how do we train designers and this is the most important aspect of the Ulm School of Design up to then there was no school nowhere in the world where you could go to to become an industrial designer. There was no curriculum or something like that uh, which said you have to do this and this and this in order to become an industrial designer and that's what they were trying to do and what they eventually established which one would call this eventually the Ulm model and I can explain that a little later and so and they also argued that the industry was really looking for these industrial designers because up to then especially in Italy people who were working in that field were had usually a background as architects many were architects or sculptors or artists who sort of had a talent to work also in this field in Germany you could for example also name Peter Behrens who was even before World War One one of the leading designers for um, AEG the one of the electrical companies in, in Germany and so what they did in Ulm was to establish a curriculum about what a designer has to learn. And so they introduced, for example, mathematical operation analysis uh, and made lots of maths anyway. So some people had to struggle with that. And uh, within the visual communication departments, you had to learn about semiotics, the theory of signs. And also Ulm was the first school of design to introduce that into the curriculum, um, statistics, psychology and all this. So there's really a, a, a large bit of theory related to the education. But um, if we look, uh, come back to the actual designing process, they also tried to put method in sort of the procedure of designing. So what, what do you do when you design a cup? or an electric appliance or even a system for traffic or a system, a building system. Uh, so they try to, to establish methods uh, which you could follow in order to, to have a result. Mm. And we have different uh, elements of course here in the exhibition where I could explain that. And I already mentioned another important word which is the word system. So uh, to establish a system not just to uh, design one single product like sort of the w- most wonderful vase in the world or something like that but uh, a system of products and that could be the stackable tableware for example that's a system within 
the, the, the tableware, but also a corporate identity is a kind of system because many, many parts form a complete whole and they should be recognizable as part of this uh, particular uh, corporate identity. And also traffic was regarded as a very as an, a system you have to design. So again, this is also sort of we can trace this back to the idea of the beginning of to the Bauhaus that you don't stop uh, designing one thing, but you sort of try to design everything. And Max Bill put it like this: that you design from the coffee spoon to the whole city. So the whole environment humans are sort of uh, dealing with has to be and can be designed and has to be designed in a, in a, in a good way and in a way people like and people feel good in. It is such a modern, still modern concept, isn't it? The, the idea of that branding across all aspects. Yeah, I mean the branding is now very important for any company which is working worldwide. But um, I think one important difference with the Ulm School of Design is that they didn't put the marketing idea first. It was more uh, they really had a high moral or ethics standard and you would not find people uh, studying there who try to make a fortune with sort of a, a very snappy slogan or smart slogan for washing powder or something like that. Those people would not fit into the school because uh, that would be regarded as a very manipulative uh, way to use language. And the founding generation, one must remind oneself, had survived the Third Reich and of course Inge Eicher Scholl, she was the sister, the older sister of Hans and Sophie Scholl who fought against uh, the Hitler regime in the group White Rose and they were found out and they were killed eventually in '43. and they had uh, experienced themselves how language can be manipulated in order to manipulate people or how language can be used in order to manipulate people and so they, and that's also an interesting exp uh, aspect of the school, within the five departments there are, there's also an information department and this information department was trying to teach people uh, a good usage of language and an informative way of, of uh, to use language and especially not to manipulate people. So maybe if we're already, already talking about the uh, departments, I can name them. Please do, yeah. because we're, we're also standing uh, next to this... Um, how many sides is it? I think it's four. Four, four, four. sides. It's, it's, it's a four-sided. <laughs> it's a five-sided. <laughs> I'm not sure what a five-sided thing's called. But, um, Pentagon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the design aspect there. And uh, so what we have here is this is... The, also, we're, you've got the five, school, the five schools, which you'll talk about, but this is also the library concept, isn't it, yes, exactly. uh, of the exhibition, in which we have um, the different aspects, as you're talking about, the white rose, the background, yeah, yeah. those things. But look, before we talk about that, let's talk about the actual five schools of our... Yeah, the, or we call them departments. Departments, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's one school mm -hmm. and with five departments eventually, and in the beginning there were only four, and that's uh, product design, visual communication, information, I just talked mm -hmm. about that one, and building... And in '62, the fifth department was established, which was the film department. And that, again, 
was really the one of the, or the first film department on university level in Germany. So the one in Munich was founded only a little later. So again, you can see how the Ulm School of Design tried to be very avant-garde and very close to the developments generally you know, within the uh, design field. And um, the, uh, one could say that the product design department was the biggest one with 249 students uh, going through the course, but all in all there were just 650 students uh, studying in Ulm between 1953, the year of the founding, and 1968, the closing mm -hmm. year of the school. Um, shall we talk about the Let's library? go and have a look at the library, yes. Yeah, I was just talking about the different uh, departments. We have been talking about the foundation course. And the foundation course, that's the first year. And that was not just the visual training, but also general uh, education, uh, literature, history, sociology, and different uh, other different subjects. And um, what is also important about the school that they try to establish interdisciplinary work quite early. And when I talked about uh, that, for example, traffic can be seen as a system, uh, the system might consist of something like uh, sort of a bus stop, but also I want to have a timetable with the bus stop. So I have the product designers doing the bus stop and I have the visual communication designers doing the timetable. So this is the kind of interdisciplinary work they are trying to do. And all of this, all of those people still have to have some input on the theoretical side. And that's why the library is quite important. And uh, if you talk to former students, they have a very fond memory of this library. And this is also because Ulmis uh, ha had no similar library uh, at all. And it's a very specialist uh, library, of course, where we have, for example, of course, the, the book about the White Rose, uh, Inge Eichenscholl edited in 1952. But also, if I look at this side, about Gestalt theory, that's a very important subject within the foundation course and the whole design process. Uh, but also about the operation analysis I have been talking about and many, many uh, theoretical approaches of, to design, especially coming from the United States. So they were very much orientated towards uh, the U.S. In, in, in those years and uh, the most interesting ideas really came from there. Um, and we also find early books about cybernetics, so we are in the pre-digital age, and so they already thought about how computers might be used within the uh, mass production, the planning of processes and all this. Um, and yeah, if we have a look at the literature, um, we also find, yeah, again to cybernetics, that's uh, uh, one book is called Thinking Machines by Louis Cuffignal. That's one of the major titles of the period. But uh, again, we have a, a novel. If you now, I'm sort of missing the. Um, it's uh, Isaac Asimov. Yes, I Robot was was published in those years. So that's one of the most important science fiction texts of those years. But <clears throat> related to the visual aspects. Um, they try to do in Ulm is concrete poetry and we have several concrete poets working in Ulm. One is Eugen Gomringer 
who is still alive. He's now in his late 80s, actually. And uh, so, again, you see there is sort of uh, the visual arts are close to design, but that's another conflict within the school, another soft and long chapter in the in the school's history that they try to uh, sort of separate themselves from the arts. They really try to say uh, a designer can be an artist, but he does not have to be an artist, and uh, product design is not an art. That's a very important statement by one of the teachers, by Thomas Maldonado. If it's not an art, then it is it's, what? It's design. It's I mean, design. It's design. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It's design. But product design is not... It's it's just a different discipline, and you had to, and this is what I try was trying to explain when I talked about the methodology. <clears throat> it's not about intuition and sort of to express yourself when you design stackable tableware or a car. You have to because you have to have results and reliable results and results which can be mass produced, and so you have to have a certain set of methods in order to to be to be able to fulfill the needs of your. Uh, uh, of the people who give you the contract to design whatever and um, uh, and this is quite different what from what an artist does and so this is basically what what is meant by the term Ulm model which I have mentioned before and Otto Eicher another founder of the school he said that uh, the Ulm model is based on technology and design. It's a, a concept of design based on technology and uh, science, and that the product designer is no longer uh, a lofty artist, sort of, but he is uh, involved in the whole production process. And that means that he does not only have to know about aesthetics, but also he has to know how a factory works or what is the what are the needs of the people who do the forms for the stackable tableware or the or whatever and that brings me back to the library because we also find many technical books within the library which were available to the students mm. and and my favorite one um, is I, I don't really can't probably translate the title into English but there's really a brochure with a title in, in the way saying uh, how crockery is drying in industrial washing uh, or industrial uh, dishwashers, and so if that's absolutely riveting. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm making a joke. That yeah. sounds like a riveting title. Uh, absolutely. How, yeah, yeah, yeah. how so it dries in industrial yeah, yeah, washing. I'm wondering who is who is crazy enough to write this. <laughs> yeah, you're right, um, but. We all know this problem. If we open our dishwasher, there's always one item you sort of have to give an extra wipe with your uh, tea towel. And, of course, you have to think about this problem, too, when you are designing uh, tableware, because uh, if you try to sell this to somebody working, running a restaurant, and, and that person sees that his people have to, have to dry uh, the, the cups or whatever, uh, for, uh, for an extra minute they, they just lose too much time so they won't buy this particular design and so it will not be a successful design and so uh, that's why they have to be so precise about everything with, with the design mm. and, and, that's, and, this is, and this again also shows that you can't resolve these problems like this just by intuition alone because you might not think about it because you might just think about and meditate about your the perfect shape but 
uh, it doesn't come by intuition. And in fact, as you talk about tableware, we can actually yeah, see the yeah, tableware. Yeah, we can here. see the tableware. And, and um, it, it looks like tableware everyone can use or has used yeah, in yeah. catering, um, yeah. when they're at conferences. Yeah, and, and of course, you really have to explain why is this sort of museum piece. Uh, and, and of course, we are here within the RMIT gallery, within a sort of architecture and design school. But nevertheless, if I show this uh, in Ulm, uh, a regular audience, they sometimes say, well, I have this at home, or I, have, I use this in the Mensa, why would I find it in a museum vitrine? And so we see here a diploma work project, so the, the, the four years course was finished with a diploma project, and it was a practical part and a theoretical part, and this one was done in 1958-59 by Hans Nick Röhricht, um, who later became professor at uh, University of Berlin, but he's still living in Ulm and he's now 80, 81. And he did this for the Rosenthal company and for a particular brand of them uh, called Thomas. And um, the, his idea, of, or uh, no, one step back. I mean, the idea to stack tableware is it comes up in the 30s, and actually Wilhelm Wagenfeld has a design for stackable containers in the late 30s. But this is really one of the first uh, stackable tablewares where you can stack all the parts, even the pots, because and uh, he simply uh, does not design a lid for the, uh, uh, um, a handle for the lid, so you can put the lid on the pot and then the next pot and then another lid and so you can stack them complete and take them out of the of the cupboard if you if you need them and you don't have to sort of look for the lid and uh, uh, coordinate it with a with a pot. And of course, you need stackable tableware if you are catering for a large number of exactly. people in a exactly. commercial environment. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's why it's also uh, called TC100, and the C in TC is simply for compact because it really uh, you can uh, sort of store these tableware in, in a very tight space too because the whole um, uh, all elements are sort of within a grid system and the, the main idea of, the, of, of Nick Röhricht was to have a double cylinder as the base for his design that means I have the lower part with a smaller diameter and the upper part with a larger diameter. And especially with the cups, and you can see that in the section uh, over here, uh, especially the cups uh, stack quite deeply into each other, so the, th the stacks are also very stable, even if you have many cups stacked on top of each other. So we, in the vitrine we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but we could go even higher. Uh, try this with any cups you have at home. You won't be able to do it usually because, again, then the, the handle has to be at a certain point of the cup in order to make this possible. Um, and you see here also in the vitrine that the handles can be put in one line so they don't interfere with each other. And so the same is true, of course, for the sources, for the... Um, uh, for the plates and other elements and uh, Hans Nick Röhrig told me that it was a, a big 
diploma project because he designed more than 30 pieces because in those days they tried to have many different pieces for different functions within the within this field um, yes and what I was trying to explain that the students just can't design this by intuition but they have to know about what is happening in the in the factory and he was at the at this factory which is in the Bavarian uh, area <clears throat> close to the Czech border that's the, where the uh, large china factories uh, are situated in Germany and um, I was talking about the cylinder as a basic idea but if we look at the finished product we find that the lower part is not a cylinder anymore but it has a slight slope and this is simply a, necess a necessity in order to remove the fi finished product from the form. And there's a, a term in German, I still don't know the English one, I'm sorry, and it's called Ausformschräge, and um, we could maybe call it the slope to deform the, sh the form, maybe, the product. We have to look this up, maybe. <laughs> but you see, it, it makes a lot of sense in German, though. <laughs> it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> and and uh, uh, technical engineers will tell you that this particular slope has to have at least two uh, percent uh, degree. Uh, the slope has to be two percent slope. Yeah. I'm actually looking at mm. the the lip, if you like, of yeah. um, the the jug here, yeah. Yeah. and thinking I'm sure that pours really well. I'm sure it doesn't splatter all over the table. No, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I know from experience it doesn't. Very yeah, good. Yeah. And, uh, and then because if we go from the finished product over mm. here yeah. and you've got some vitrines yeah. over here which yeah. would you like to talk about? Yeah. It's about how I guess forms isn't it which aren't or exercises or yeah. how would you describe it? Okay. We sort of return to uh, the basic uh, to the foundation course okay. to the first year and we have um, we have started uh, with two-dimensional works and now we have three-dimensional works mm -hmm. and uh, within the foundation course it's important that all the designs they were assigned were non-applied so that means they just deal with shapes with colors uh, with forms for themselves and with no idea what the product could be, but as you already uh, saw, there is a relation eventually between the two. And so in one of the retreats we see a row of, you could say bricks maybe, because um, if you don't know what they are about, you sort of, these are you might think it's just bricks and they are... In fact, it looks like a very early mobile phone. <laughs> a very early and very heavy Very tool. heavy, yes. <laughs> a sort of 19, I don't know, 86 uh, brick. Yeah. We, we right. call them bricks in Australia, the ah, old okay. phones. So oh, that's it, it, it is, yes. And, and of heavy and, of course, you need two hands to that's hold right. them. And <laughs> Not very yeah. mobile at all, really. <laughs> at all. Yeah, that's right. And um, so, But what they are actually are are studies of radiuses. And so you might wonder, why do I have to study this? A radius is a radius, but if you look at these different studies, you will find that each of the eight uh, is different, and you can have many different radiuses even on one object. And uh, f 
whoever listens to this podcast, just take out your mobile phone and look at the radiuses on your mobile phone and you will find many different ones. Well, I'm looking at mine now yeah. and I can actually see that it is the way you might hold something is different where a curve might be. Yeah. Um, and the thickness exactly. and, and all sorts of things that affect its functionality. Yeah, and for example, my mobile phone, which is a different brand than yours, has a different uh, radius uh, on the side which where my hand is mm -hmm. and uh, in, in opposition to the top side. So um, also this can be used in order to div differentiate a product, of course. But uh, for these studies, it's simply to, to sort of produce an awareness with the students of how you can change the shape by using a more tight radius, we said, mm -hmm. and a more wide radius, and of course uh, that you can have uh, different radiuses within the same object. And I think we have just one uh, of these bricks where all where the radius is, is all the same on all sides, and then we have many different solutions. And you are absolutely right that this can be applied to things which are held by, by hand or, or, or even one or two hands. And um, so my co-creators, they decided to put into the vitrine uh, two um, models of um, walkie-talkies. They were done in the early 60s within the class of Hans Gugelow, who was one of the most important uh, product designers working at the HFG, at the Ulm School of Design. And again, they look rather heavy and rather large, but the assignment was to uh, that they should contain a certain kind of battery, a monoblock battery, which had a particular size, and it sort of could not be smaller than that one. And also the antenna was to be held within the casing of this walkie-talkie, and the purpose for this walkie-talkie, it was to be used within industrial companies where you would not have a phone or where it was too loud in order to uh, speak to people. And so this also results in a rather large button to operate uh, the walkie-talkie, but that button is so large because one thought people might have a glove on and in order to, despite the glove, press the button properly, they, they have a large button. And it's very practical, isn't it, in that sense? I mean, it's not just something that looks interesting or pretty or decorative. Yeah, it yeah. actually is functional. It's absolutely functional. And I, I mean, you really could discuss, was it, was it ever pretty, the design? <laughs> because it looks really a bit, uh, one might say, dry. But um, what is also interesting that they also tried from the beginning to have a, sh a, a, a shape which indicates by itself uh, where to speak and where to listen so that you would uh, put the walkie-talkie in the correct way to your ear. And that's something I think we really don't think about when we use our uh, mobile phones nowadays. But this is, again, something you have to design. And this is what the old whole idea of Ulm is about and what Max Bill tried to say when he said we design everything from the coffee spoon to a whole city. If you walk around your city and you look what you find, the lampposts, the benches, or I just saw outside the gallery you have very nice bike stands there and even the 
you call them manholes. Manholes. Manholes yes, in, the street. in the street. In the streets are also those have to be designed by somebody, and they can be designed in different ways. So, um, yeah, we. That's the same. The same is true for this uh, walkie-talkie, of course. Yeah, of course. Now I'm looking at my phone and thinking, how do I know which yeah, way to hold it? I was, and yeah, and then there is the subtle cue, isn't there, that the button that we press on yeah. is slightly indented. I'm it, not sure about yours, yeah, but yeah. that's the cue. That's there there the has cue. to be some cue. And this is what is what now is called intuitive design, and that's also something the school tried to do without having really uh, used the term yet, and which we would find already at the SK4, the Snow White's coffee. In one of the most iconic, iconic products which was designed at the school. Well, let's walk over to the Snow White's coffin because it's a, yeah. a rather gorgeous design. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, it's. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about this. This is actually a, um, a radio and record player? Yes. Yes. That's, oh, what yes. That's, that's why it's called a compact appliance. Compact appliance. And it was uh, designed in 1956 for the company Brown, which uh, eventually became one of the uh, companies in Germany uh, which really uh, put design uh, or uh, tried to, de to market their products with, with good design. But this is really the beginning of the whole story. The company existed already uh, before the World War, and during the world where they had to produce radios. Um, and in 52, the father, the founder of the company, died, and the sons had to take over, and they really were in difficult times, and the company was about to collapse. And so they approached the school, and we know that they came to the school in late 54 in order to have new products for the fair in 55. And um, so they, they had several products and um, they approached the school because they knew they needed an, a more modern approach and um, so in, in that uh, the most important designer within this design process was Hans Gugelow again and um, he was working with some of the students and other people from the school on the design and there is even a legend and uh, that uh, the, the casing you can see here which is made from metal was produced in one night at the school and the whole thing sort of the concept for the whole uh, product was developed in three days so we are trying right now at, at our archive trying to establish really the order of things and uh, the story because many, so many people are involved with, with, with the particular design of the Snow White's coffin as it is always also called and that I will explain in a minute. So what we see is basically a box, but the box is made from wood and metal, and that's a new thing because up to then the radios uh, produced by Browns were put into wooden boxes uh, or wooden cases, I should better say. And, um, uh, and in generally uh, electric appliances, especially uh, like this, when you look at other products from other uh, brands, they look, would look much more like furniture, and they would not uh, show the technical aspects. One rather try to hide the technical aspects. And so, if you had a sort of um, a living room with uh, furniture in a certain style, they try to to uh, 
to make it similar to the style. So you would find full Rococo music furniture kind of uh, in, in, in living rooms rather than a technical appliance like this one. And this is the really the new approach uh, that they sort of um, exhibit the it, the, it is, the, the technicality of, of the whole appliance. So you can see it is an LP player plus a radio. And um, this is mainly because of the Perspex uh, lid they have introduced, which is also a first, uh, the first uh, usage of Perspex uh, with in this field. And uh, that might have been an idea by Dieter Rams, which... Uh, is another important person involved in the design process and Dieter Rams is quite well known today and he is the uh, head of the design department for 40 years at Braun but in 54 he was uh, just joining the company or in 56 only so he is rather new to the company and probably not as much involved in the process as uh, some people say so we have um, uh, the metal, uh, the metal casing, and it's in white. It's uh, or light grey, and, and there might be something lost in translation because the translation says light grey, and Lichtgrau in German means that it's a sort of uh, greyish white. So it's more, uh, the, it's more white than green, than grey. I would want to say, and um, also the. The casing of the LP player and also all the buttons are uh, made in grey. And we were talking about why do we know how to switch on the mobile phone. And this is already true here. Uh, you see a, a slightly conical buttons and you see um, buttons which, which are rectangular and are slightly dented. And so you know I have to press this but the conical button I have to turn mm. and nobody tells you but the shape tells you the so this is, right. this is yes. uh, the, the intuitive design they tried to uh, to realize with, uh, with all their products um, which also means that you don't have to have so many inscription on the, mm. on the product which makes the appearance of it much more clearer rather than having lots of um, um, uh, words on it so I mean, I guess that it also makes it, in a sense, global because you don't have to have translation. Perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Was that maybe an idea as no, well? No, that uh, for for Brown certainly because mm. I mean they were trying to market their the products globally, and um, what is interesting is that um, apparently this was not so much uh, uh, an economic success but an, uh, a success regarding the image of the company that as I told you before that they are sort of the leading design brand in, in Germany because the big money came in uh, with products like a razor, an electric razor, the brown six tonne, which you also can see here on the... And here we have uh, an example of radius too then. Yes, exactly. And again, something which you have to hold, have to hold in yes. your hand and where you have to know how to switch it on and where the switch has to be on the, right, on the correct side in order to use it easily. Yeah, that's another perfect example. And also the kitchen appliances are rather, were rather popular and brought in some money and also the cameras and slide projectors. But this really is the iconic product. It was really in all the magazines, in all design books. You will find it um, in major design histories, of course. And what is interesting is that um, when it was... Uh, 
introduced in Frankfurt at the fair. Uh, the, the people from other companies came to the Brown Brothers and told them you will be you will be out of your your, your company will be dead in two months or so. Sort of. <laughs> so, but this was not the case. The company was sold in '67 to Gillette for a large sum of money, and it, it is now owned by an Italian company actually. And um, so this really established uh, the Ulm, the image of the Ulm School of Design and what products from Ulm, coming from Ulm, looked like. We have been talking about the radiuses and here again you see very uh, narrow radiuses within the casing and, uh, and other radiuses you, you can easily see within the record player and also the lid. And uh, the success was even so that eventually there was a saying in English to Ulm up at one point, oh. <laughs> and which means if you wanted to let appear your product as if it was designed at Ulm, you, you, you Ulmed it up, which must have meant you, you worked on the radiuses, I guess, and also on the color <laughs> uh, in order to make it appear like that. Instead of pimping it up, you owned it up. You owned it up, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it, it and that would mean not pimping it up. Yes, it's the opposite of pimping. It's the opposite of pimping, because uh, what what you can't see on the podcast, of, obviously, is that we are dealing with more or less no color or only few colors, and um, we have here a, a more or less clinical white and light gray, and of course uh, the wood, which is uh, in, also in light colors. Uh, it's not a dark wood. Anymore. It's it's still something that is so um, covetable, you know. I mean, it's 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 so modern, so so of the time. But you know, it's 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 not something that looks. You're talking about how the old record players mm. looked mm. Um, in terms of they almost look like sideboards, yeah, or yeah. you know, and and they're like they're, furniture, like absolutely. furniture, yeah, yes. Yeah. And not really anyone wants to have those around. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, and this is really something mobile. It's something mm. you could carry into another room and we also have images, photographs of the of parties at the Ulm School of Design where they carried the, this appliance out to the terrace for example um, so It's like, it's also, like a, an early uh, version of an, an iPod or something yeah, in, in a way, in a way certainly. <laughs> yes. I mean, and, but again this is also an important aspect of the whole uh, design, pro, uh, design product of the whole idea of designing products that Already at the Ulm School of Design, they realized that miniaturization will become a problem, that the sort of the technical side of the products will become smaller and smaller, but you still have to design a casing which is large enough for our hands to, to use it properly. Mm. Because at this point, um, the development within, with the radios was uh, to the transistor, because the models before they used a different technique and they were much bigger so they had to of course the cases had to be bigger and now the radios get smaller and smaller and also those were done for brown we have one example here um, but also for other companies of course so that, of course that brings us to a point too that um, the school closed in... 68, 1968. So we, um, way before we, we hit the digital age. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, the closing of the school is a long story too and a very difficult story. And um, 
Yeah, shall we talk about this in length right now? Or well, no. I mean, maybe, maybe we, we could go on to and um, perhaps something else which yeah, sort maybe, of we'll talk, talk yeah, about um, yeah. sort of the designs and, and the philosophy. Yeah, I think then the Ulmstuhl might be a good example. What do you I, think? I think the Ulmstuhl is very good because yeah. we're looking at it. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a highlight too of the exhibition everywhere here. Yeah. Um, you can still sit on it and I believe you said it's still produced? Yeah, it's still produced. Uh, it's produced uh, by a large German company but also in Switzerland and uh, there's a specialty in Ulm that it is produced by a workshop where um, people with problems, psychic or other problems, are working, so it's also a sort of social aspect to it. At the time of the school, it was produced within the school, in the wood workshop. There were different workshops. That's also similarity to the Bauhaus, actually, that you uh, would have workshops with a master uh, running the workshop and... Um, that this, and the students had to learn the different techniques. That means uh, there was a wooden work, wood workshop, a metal workshop again, and also a plaster workshop. Uh, when we were talking about the radiuses, actually they were done by, in plaster oh. because you can uh, work on plaster up to the millimeter, and uh, so plaster was a very good material to produce models. And later on we also had a plastics workshop, which was donated by the chemical industry uh, in Germany. Um, so, as I told you, the stool was built within the school and um, the funding of the school and this uh, is, is always mm, well, there's always not enough money around one could say. Um, Inge Eicher-Scholl succeeded in convincing the Americans to donate one million marks in order to build the building, but they said you get the money but only if you raise another million marks within the German side and she succeeded in doing that in 1950 and that's a really large sum of money uh, but for this, for the early examples of the stool for example they had to use uh, wood which was given to them so it, the early examples are sometimes really uh, in a bad quality but that didn't, didn't matter and so uh, it's basically three boards joined together uh, at the edge and there is a, a circular bar and we have uh, two elements on the base made of beech wood the other one uh, the other elements are usually fir some kind of fir wood and um, yeah that's these are six elements which make the stool and uh, the shape the appearance looks very rectangular very strict and you can discuss whether it's comfortable or not, but it's practical and so it's So people functional. who come to the exhibition can sit on it they and can uh, sit on it. Yeah, we have say whether it is comfortable around, or not, yeah. because it looks like um, an old-fashioned fruit box, in a way. Yeah, I don't know in a way, you, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, you're, you're right. So, yes. yeah. so very, very utilitarian. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really the idea, that you just did not just only use it as a... As a uh, uh, stool to sit on but you can see here we have one image of Max Bill uh, the architect of the school's building and also one of the designers involved in the designing of the Ulm stool. He put it on top of a table in order to have a lectern for his lecture and you could also flip it to the side and then you had a sort of occasional table you could put next to your bed and then that uh, circular bar would be kind of bookend in order 
to to keep your books in balance. Um, and um, as people sitting here in this um, yeah. photo, they're sitting on the floor lounging, young yeah. students, yeah. and just propping you know stuff up against it there. So. It yeah, has they, some casual yeah, uses. And yeah, they, they are just using it as a writing desk, writing on, desk yes. on the outside. They are mm. sitting on the terrace of the building. Apparently there's an outside lecture going on. Um, and uh, we have another image of an outside lecture where the people are sitting on the stool uh, around their professor. And here we have an office where someone's sitting on the stool and then the stool's also used as a bookcase with yeah, a lamp on top. Exactly, so, yeah. Yes. To be more precise, it's actually a student's room in one of the... Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, in, no, no, you can't... Room? No, that, yeah. It's a student's room that's... Uh, uh, because this on the side is actually the bed. Uh, oh, so, right. Um, and I, it's actually Almir Mavinier, a student from Brazil, one of the early generation. It's the Yeah, it's a Flocati covering <laughs> of the bed. <laughs> And um, so let me name the people involved in the designing. That was Max Bill and, again, Hans Güzelow. We have heard about him already. And Paul Hildinger, he was the master of the wood workshop. So three people involved. And, again, we have some legends about this tool and some people say the joining. And in, in, in Germany it's called Fingerverzinkung. And I think in English it's... if you. Here, joining, you have an idea of how it's done. Do you have any technical words for the way? I would have called it tongue and groove. Yeah, tongue, tongue and groove. groove. Yeah, perfect. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and some people say this tongue and groove idea was by Paul Hildinger, by the by mm. the wood uh, wood shop master. And this is what in in 1955 when this was uh, designed. This was not expensive. To do, but nowadays it's expensive because mm. you have to. It's still involved with a lot of uh, work by hand, and this makes it rather expensive mm. today. Mm. But in in the early 1960s, a stool like this cost uh, 11 marks, so students could afford it easily. And you must imagine that I was talking about the the, the difficulties with the money. In the beginning, they really didn't have money to furbish the school completely, and so. That's why they designed the school, the stool, in order to carry it from the mensa uh, to the lecture, to the workshop, and maybe even to the to the living quarters. I don't know that about that, but it was it, again. It had to be movable, and this is. I mean, this is what is furniture about. Möbel in German means, of course, mobile, or it has an inclination to that word. And so, this is again a perfect example of how mobile a piece of furniture should be ideally we're coming up to the end of the podcast now so what i'd like to do is perhaps go back just briefly and talk about you were talking about the end of yep. the om school and you've also mentioned here of course that we're talking about the living quarters and the eating quarters and mm. things like that so it, it was a, a facility that was integrated that people studied there and lived mm. there and yep all the rest of it, and it, it still exists yeah. as, a, as, a, as a place. So did we talk about what happened, sort of, it, it had a, a very influential period of its existence. Mm. Well, um, it is, uh, the, the building still exists, but the school not, uh, but the foundation which was, uh, which was running the school, it still exists, and the foundation owns all the buildings, and our archive is actually... Uh, within the building since two years, since 2011, we are again, or we are, uh, we moved to the building and we are quite happy about that. Uh, but well, about the end. The end is a very difficult subject because um, 
sort of when you try to decide who is whose fault it is that the school was closed, you will have you will find different opinions. Uh, but very importantly, that's why I mentioned the foundation. The foundation run the school, and the school was private, and so it only could be closed by itself. And that's what they actually did. Uh, and the story is that um, the school was always. Uh, had always its crisis and the major crisis the first major crisis was when Max Bill left the school and first he he, uh, he uh, sort of took down his responsibilities as a director of the school in the 56 and in 57 he left the school altogether taking 20 students with him and um, another crisis was in 62 when there was a lot uh, even a discussion within the German press whether the uh, public funds were used properly and all this. And in '66, uh, the financial problems were becoming very, uh, yeah, were very dangerous, I might say, because the foundation was highly in debt. And the German federal government uh, decided in '67 that the funding of universities was not. Uh, um, supposed to be done by the federal state, but the different federal states forming the whole of, of the Bundesrepublik. So suddenly 200,000 marks were missing and they were already in debt with 400,000 marks. So in 68, they, the foundation had to say we are not able to finance the school in 69. What do we do? And um, because of I mean, the local government in Baden-Württemberg was not a right-wing, but it was a conservative government, and they were always not so happy with what happened at the school. And in '68, like everywhere else, we have, of course, leftist orientation of the school in general. And, um, for example, there was one anti-Vietnam demonstration which was not allowed officially allowed and just the students did it anyway and so they had again negative press within Ulm which is still a rather conservative town actually and um, so all these problems came together in this particular year but already in February of 68 we have a a student vote or a vote of the whole school rather to close the school than to accept a solution. For example, it, there was a suggestion to integrate the Ulm School within uh, Stuttgart University. And you must know Stuttgart is just 80 to 90 kilometers uh, in distance to Ulm, so it's not far away. And it has a big tradition in, in as a technical university. Many important architects uh, in, of the 20th century have studied in Stuttgart, actually. But that would have meant that the school would give up, give up its um, independence. And this is, again, one of the key elements, uh, the independence of the school, that the school itself could decide what do we teach, who, who will be teaching in Ulm. Um, but the other side or the other question is, of course, who is going to finance this independence. And so um, many, many problems could not be resolved within this short year of 68. So we already have in February this resolution I was talking about. In March, the foundation had to uh, send uh, 
everybody away or at least uh, announced that the school w will be closed because the funding was not sufficient for 69 and for the new study year 68-69 only few people came back and so uh, at the end of the year the school closed down and this was the end of the story in Ulm but um, there are some people who said the whole concept of the school was very much like an experiment which had to blow up and only by this blowing up of the school, the ideas of the school were uh, sort of transported to all corners of the world. And there are really two schools in Brazil, for example, following the ideas. Of course, in Germany, we have many schools uh, following the steps of Ulm. At least partly, you will find many elements of the foundation course, for example, within other school schools program. And um, so this might be... I mean, also this idea is, uh, or this uh, explanation is quite interesting to think about if, if that was not the reason why the school became internationally so well known uh, because it was sort of, it, it blew up in the end. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's the, um, the OM model is, yeah. is, is highly regarded and still used. Yep. Yes, Absolutely. around the world. Yeah, around the world. And uh, I mentioned Brazil, but there was one uh, student from... India and he established the National Design Institute, National Institute of Design, sorry, in Ahmedabad. And um, because we are talking about this exhibition, and this exhibition is a touring exhibition, it tours since uh, 2007, so seven years now, and it has been in India, and it has been in Brazil, it has been in Spain, so um, it really is, and it was quite well received everywhere, so I think this also shows that there is still there are still valid ideas uh, of the Ulm School of Design. And just to, um, to wrap up, the exhibition was put together for the anniversary, was that right? Yes, or? that's right. It was the first uh, edition of this exhibition was put together for the anniversary of, uh, of the 50th anniversary of the founding of the school in 1953. That means that exhibition was in Ulm in 2003. And... Um, and then this version for the tour was put together, which was a slightly smaller version, but the, the concept was the same as the one in 2003, that we would explain the departments, that we would have for each year a different item or design to explain the story. Um, and, of course, the book tower was there and many more. Thank you very much, Martin. It's been very interesting, and I hope um, if you haven't been able to come in to see the exhibition, you'll see our video on the RMIT Gallery website, um, or simply Google some of the uh, the iconic images, which is what Alm School of Design is known for. Thank you very much, Evelyn. And even you could look at our archives website, which there's an you will find an English version too. That's terrific. Thank you.